Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's Accelerated Degree Programs. Our six- and eight-week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. At around 1.30 a.m. on August 1st, 1947, Sergeant Elmer Taff hitched a ride on a B-25 bomber leaving McCord Field, Washington. Just before takeoff, he noticed the two pilots load a heavy box onto the craft. For the first 20 minutes of the flight, everything was going pretty smoothly. And then, Taff looked out the window and saw, to his horror, a fire engulfing the left engine. Taft's adrenaline shot up. One of the pilots, Lieutenant Brown, gave the order to put on their parachutes. Taft frantically struggled to get harnessed as he watched the fire grow. He thought, is this the end? Suddenly, a violent push sent him out of the inferno and into the night. As Taft descended, he watched in shock as the fiery left wing broke off and the plane began to nosedive. It crashed to the ground behind him. Little did Taft know that the man who ordered the evacuation had just finished investigating one of the first flying saucer sightings in the U.S. And that the mysterious box, loaded just before takeoff, contained proof of the existence of UFOs. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered thousands, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. 
Today marks the end of our exploration into the Maury Island and Mount Rainier incidents, the first documented cases of UFO sightings in the United States. Last week, we discussed the flying saucer sightings of Harold Dahl, Fred Chrisman, and Kenneth Arnold, and the beginning of Arnold's investigation into Harold and Fred's claims. This week, we'll conclude Arnold's strange investigation into the Maury Island incident and explore some explanations for what may have really happened in June 1947. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. After seeing nine flying saucers near Mount Rainier, Washington, aviator Kenneth Arnold was hired by magazine editor Raymond Palmer to investigate similar claims made by Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman in Tacoma. Arnold began his investigation on July 29, 1947. After listening to the two men's stories and inspecting slag fragments they claimed came from the saucers, Arnold called in his friend, Captain Emil Smith, and military intelligence officers, Lieutenant Frank Brown and Captain William Davidson. He hoped they could help make sense of the mystery. After speaking with Fred and Harold and studying the slag fragments themselves, Brown and Davidson were convinced that the two men were lying, much to Arnold's disappointment. However, the officers agreed to take some of the slag with them back to Hamilton Field, California to be tested. Just before 9.30 a.m. the next morning, Kenneth Arnold received a phone call from Fred Chrisman informing him that Brown and Davidson's plane had crashed. An icy chill ran down Arnold's spine. He was in complete shock. After a few seconds, he hollered for Smith to come out of the bathroom and gave him the phone. When Fred told Smith the news, his face went white. Smith began making calls to McCord Field he was able to get confirmation of the crash and that two of the four men on the plane had died. However, his contacts didn't reveal any names. Arnold was shaken. He paced back and forth, trying to figure out what to do next. He wanted out of the investigation. He called the man who hired him, Raymond Palmer, and told him that he was quitting. He even offered to return the $200 Palmer had paid him for the job. But before Arnold could finish, Fred Chrisman burst into the hotel room. He snatched the receiver from Arnold's hand and told Palmer about the crash. As Arnold listened, he thought Fred's tone was strange. He was so enthusiastic, so unshaken. Could Fred be hiding something from him? Arnold grabbed the phone back. Palmer very seriously told him to end the investigation and not to take the slag with them when they left Tacoma. But when he hung up the phone, Arnold reconsidered. Despite every ounce of him saying he should quit, there was a lingering need to continue in the back of his mind. Perhaps it was curiosity to see where this whole thing would take him. 
or maybe it was a feeling of guilt over the deaths of Brown and Davidson. Both men were so kind and willing to believe in Arnold's saucer story. Now, they may have perished because of it. Against his better judgment, Arnold decided that he wasn't going to leave until the job was done. He still wanted to see Harold's boat, the one that was damaged the day Harold saw the flying saucers. They all agreed to look at it the next day. Not long after they called Palmer, Arnold and Smith got another call from reporter Ted Morello, who'd been receiving mysterious tips about what was going on in room 502. He had just finished an interview with a survivor of the plane crash, one Sergeant Elmer Taff, and wanted to know if Arnold and Smith would be interested in listening to it. Arnold said yes right away. He and Smith agreed to meet the following day. Later that evening, Morello phoned again. The same anonymous informant who had been telling him about the conversations in room 502 was now claiming that the B-25 bomber that crashed was shot down by a 20-millimeter cannon. Arnold and Smith looked at each other in confusion. Shot down? By who? The Russians? Or could the U.S. military have shot down one of their own? Were Brown and Davidson the targets? And if so, did that mean Arnold and Smith were next? But the informant wasn't done. He began rattling off a series of outlandish proclamations. According to the informant, Arnold was shot at while recently flying in Oregon. Smith was attacked while flying over Montana. Two planes that crashed earlier in the year, one at LaGuardia Airport and one in Copenhagen in May, were caused by sabotage. And finally, Smith was going to be summoned to Wright-Patterson Base for interrogation on August 5th. Arnold furrowed his brow. What did any of this have to do with flying saucers? The whole thing was getting weirder and weirder by the hour. When they hung up, Arnold and Smith were more than confused. For starters, Arnold had no recollection of being shot at while flying over Oregon, and Smith never flew over Montana as a United Airlines pilot. So how could he have been under attack? Where was this source getting his information? These questions stayed with them as they fell asleep that night. The next day, August 2nd, Arnold and Smith met with Ted Morello at his United Press office. As chance would have it, the building was located across the street from the Winthrop Hotel where they were staying. Sitting in the musty newspaper building, Morello, a congenial man who seemed concerned for them, retrieved the recording of Taff and hit the play button. The two carefully listened to the grisly recording of Sergeant Taff and his account of the Kelso crash. Neither wanted to betray any emotion, especially to a journalist. When the tape ended, all Arnold said was, wow, what an experience. But deep down, he was heartbroken. Sergeant Taft confirmed that neither Brown nor Davidson had survived the crash. As Arnold and Smith left the office and drove to inspect Harold's boat, Arnold couldn't get the two fallen officers out of his mind. But Arnold knew that he couldn't let them die in vain. By the time they arrived at the docks, Arnold mustered all the strength he could to focus on inspecting Harold's boat. 
and he was able to put his emotions aside for the time being. When they got to the boat, Arnold and Smith were unsure of what exactly they were looking at. For starters, the boat was a lot smaller than they had imagined. Arnold was led to believe that it was the size of a harbor patrol boat. If 20 tons of slag had crashed onto Harold's boat, it surely would have sunk. The damage was minimal. Much of the broken deck was repaired already, but even then, it barely showed signs of surviving a UFO attack. Arnold couldn't hide his frustration. It was becoming increasingly obvious that this whole thing was a waste of time. Two men died because of this bizarre investigation. And now, a key piece of supposed evidence turned out to be a load of nonsense. All Arnold wanted to do was go back to the hotel and rest. Fred promised to take them to Maury Island if they changed their minds. Arnold vaguely said, perhaps. Arnold and Smith got back into Smith's car. Fred watched them leave, smiling and waving enthusiastically. Arnold didn't have the energy to think about his strange demeanor. Arnold needed a cigarette. It was obvious that Harold and Fred were lying. On top of all that, he still didn't have any explanation as to how his friends died. A smoke seemed like the perfect antidote to calm him down. But he and Smith were both out. Arnold volunteered to go to the hotel lobby to buy some more. As the cashier handed him a pack from behind the counter, Arnold noticed the Tacoma Times on a newsstand next to him. Sabotage hinted in Crash of Army Bomber at Kelso by Paul Lance. Arnold grabbed the paper. Lance knew about the mysterious informant, about the events happening in room 502, about Brown and Davidson, the Kelso crash, everything. Arnold rushed up to the room and gave the paper to Smith. Arnold was shaking, barely able to light the cigarette bouncing up and down between his lips. Finally able to take a drag, he watched as Smith read the article and went white. How in the world did he have all this information? Maybe Fred and Harold were the ones leaking to him. They tried to get a hold of Fred, but there was no answer. Then they tried Harold. No answer. Where were they? After a few hours of searching, the phone rang, but it was neither Harold nor Fred. It was Morello, and he had some interesting news for them. Fred Chrisman had just boarded an Army transport plane bound for Alaska. They had just seen Fred an hour ago. How and why was he on his way to Alaska? Frantically, Smith called his contacts at McCord Field to see if a plane was actually headed that way. There was a flight in the air, the base confirmed, but they couldn't share the passenger list. There was a frantic knock at the door. The two men jumped. Their nerves were getting the better of them. Arnold cautiously peered through the peephole and was shocked to see Harold. After letting him in, Arnold demanded to know where Harold had been. Harold replied that he was at the movies. The movies? People were dying, and this man decided it would be a good time to see a movie? Arnold asked if Harold knew that Fred was on his way to Alaska. Harold responded calmly that he didn't know. Frustrated beyond measure, Arnold lit up another cigarette, told Harold he'd see him tomorrow, and went to bed. Nothing about the day made sense. 
At 9 a.m. on Sunday, August 3rd, Arnold, Smith, and Harold went to breakfast. During the meal, Smith excused himself to make a phone call. When he returned, he told Arnold that he needed to meet with someone. He instructed Arnold to go back to the hotel, lock the door, and wait for him to return at noon. Arnold didn't want to be left in the dark and was about to protest, but he saw the knowing look in Smith's eye, a reassurance that he could still trust him. Instead of fighting his friend, Arnold returned to the hotel to wait. Noon came and went with no sign of Smith. Then came 1 p.m. and still no Smith. Where was he? Finally, at 2 p.m., there was a knock on the door. Arnold opened it and was relieved to see Smith. But he wasn't alone. Standing next to him was Major George Sander, S2 Army Intelligence. He was convinced that Arnold and Smith were victims of a UFO hoax. Coming up, Major Sander reveals the truth. And the investigation takes one more disturbing twist before Arnold leaves Tacoma. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. On the afternoon of August 3rd, 1947, Kenneth Arnold found himself standing in front of Major George Sander. During breakfast, Smith had called McCord Field and was put in touch with Sander, the man investigating the Kelso crash. Arnold and Smith were hoping he could shed some light on what was going on. Arnold told Sander his story in the same facts-only way he had done with Brown and Davidson. When he finished, there was silence. Finally, it was Sanders' turn. In Sanders' estimation, Arnold and Smith were the victims of a cruel hoax played by Harold and Fred. The government was in the early stages of their own investigation, but Sanders' initial conclusion was that the B-25 crash was simply a tragic accident. As of now, there was no proof of any foul play. A sense of relief overcame Arnold. Brown and Davidson weren't victims of sabotage, no sinister government conspiracy, and he finally had confirmation that military intelligence was on the case. He no longer needed to play investigator. It was time to head home. Sander walked over to a pile of the slag fragments and examined them. He told Arnold that military intelligence would still test them to be thorough. He went around the room and gathered every single piece of slag he could find. Arnold found it strange that Sander meticulously gathered every piece of fragment. Arnold wanted to keep one for himself, but Sander demanded on taking it all. He wanted to make sure he didn't leave anything behind. Arnold obliged, but a thought occurred to him. This Major Sander is a pretty smooth guy, but he's not smooth enough at this point to convince me that these fragments aren't pretty important in some way. After gathering every slag fragment and putting them in the trunk of his car, 
Sander motioned for Arnold and Smith to get in the car. He had something he wanted to show them before they left town. Arnold found this odd, but he knew he couldn't say no to a military officer. During the drive, Arnold saw a large sign on the road that read, Tacoma Smelting Company. Smelting is the process of using heat to extract the usable metals from their ores, like silver, copper, or iron. The leftover material that isn't used after the smelting process is known as slag. As he peered out the window, Arnold saw that they were driving by piles of lava-like smelter slag. Most of what he saw looked nearly identical to the slag fragments Fred and Harold had shown them, the same ones wrapped in a hotel blanket in the back of Sander's trunk. Arnold's mind began racing. He thought that Sander might be right. Maybe he and Smith had been the victims of a hoax. Sander found a spot on the side of the road and parked. When they got out, Arnold and Smith immediately began examining the slag in front of them. To Arnold, it looked a lot like the slag Fred had given them. And yet, something felt off. He later said, To give you an idea as to how I evaluated this in my mind, close your eyes and have someone hand you a rock, a piece of brass, a piece of steel, a piece of aluminum, and a piece of copper. If you try this, as I have many times, you will notice that each one of these items has a particular feel to your fingers. It is something your memory feelings retains. Arnold asked to see the slag in the trunk of Sander's car for comparison. Sander said no. Arnold was taken aback by the blunt response. He tried to get a read on Sander, but Sander betrayed nothing. After a few more minutes of inspection, all three men loaded back into the car. As they drove back to the hotel, Arnold sat in the back seat tossing the slag from hand to hand. The smelter dump was awfully convenient for anyone hoping to pull a hoax. But did Fred and Harold think Arnold and Smith were too dumb to not eventually come across it themselves? As they pulled up at the Winthrop Hotel, Sander once again told the two pilots that in a few weeks, they would each receive a report from military intelligence about the B-25 Kelso crash, a report proving that this whole thing was a hoax. Arnold and Smith packed their suitcases in silence. Arnold wondered if Sander had lied to them to get them to leave, if the military would mislead its taxpaying citizens. But he set aside his lingering questions. He needed to get out of Tacoma. They checked out of room 502, hopped in their car, and revved the engine. But Arnold couldn't go without making one last stop. They had to say goodbye to Harold Dahl. Arnold gave directions while Smith drove. After 10 minutes, they arrived, but something was off. The house Arnold had been to less than a week earlier the one where Harold had taken him to see the black slag, was empty. Not just empty. The place was covered in cobwebs and dust. It looked like it had been abandoned for months. Arnold raced around the outside of the house, peering through the frosted windows, coughing as he kicked up dust. The layout of the house looked exactly as he had remembered. 
And yet, not a piece of furniture nor a soul in sight. No piano by the door, no radio next to the window. Perhaps he got the streets mixed up. They drove back to the main road and Arnold gave Smith the directions he had memorized. Once again, they came to the empty house. They tried it a few more times and each attempt was met with the same result. Arnold was done. He needed to get out of Tacoma. The city was nothing more than a cesspool of deceit and danger. The specter of death was everywhere, and it had caused him to question his own sanity. Smith took Arnold to the airport. After inspecting his plane to make sure that it hadn't been tampered with, Arnold turned to his friend, his investigative partner, Emil Smith, and said goodbye. What was supposed to be a simple interview about a flying saucer sighting resulted in the deaths of two military intelligence officers and more questions than answers. Only Smith could ever understand the befuddlement Arnold felt. As his plane ascended into the sky, Arnold looked back at Tacoma one last time before turning home towards Boise. In Pendleton, Oregon, he needed to stop and refuel. It had been a smooth flight so far, and he began to feel at ease once he crossed over the Cascade mountain range. All he could think about was getting home to Doris and the girls. As the airport crew filled up the plane, Arnold hopped out of the cockpit to stretch and walk around. He made sure to stay near the plane the whole time. Once it was all gassed up, Arnold climbed back in, started the engine, and made his way down the runway. He pushed on the throttle, gaining speed as he inched closer to the end. Soon, he was airborne. In about three hours, he'd be home. But when he reached 50 feet, something went wrong. The propeller in front of him stopped rotating. The engine suddenly quit. Arnold didn't panic. His instincts kicked in. Instead of attempting to restart the engine, he knew he was going to have to make an emergency landing. He pushed forward on the yoke and aimed toward the runway. He knew he'd have to time it just right. At 10 feet above the ground, he leveled off and made a hard but safe landing. Miraculously, he was able to land the plane on all three wheels, but a jolt ran up his spine as he landed on the ground. When the dust settled, he checked to make sure he was all right. A couple of bumps that would leave a bruise, but nothing serious. More than anything, it left him wondering how and why his engine suddenly quit. Arnold hopped out of the plane and inspected the engine. To his horror, he discovered that the fuel valve had been turned off. But there was only one person who could have done this, himself. And yet he couldn't remember turning it off he couldn't imagine why he would have done such a thing. Arnold kept the fuel valve incident a secret until he published his memoir five years later, in 1952. He feared that no one would believe him. In the memoir, he writes that he never was able to figure out why he would have shut the valve off. But there was never any evidence that someone else did it either. It became the mysterious and unexplained conclusion to a mysterious and unexplained investigation, an investigation that Arnold never quite gave up. After investigating Maury Island, Arnold remained interested in flying saucers for the rest of his life. 
1952, he published his memoir, The Coming of the Saucers, with Raymond Palmer, which detailed his sighting at Mount Rainier, as well as his and Smith's investigation. One of the many mysteries that neither Arnold nor Palmer were able to explain was what happened to Harold Dahl. A month after leaving Tacoma, Arnold tried calling H.A. Dahl's number again, but was told by the phone operator that there was no H.A. Dahl. Just as when he arrived at the empty house, Arnold was left confused and frustrated. By the time his memoir had been published, Arnold still hadn't made contact with Harold. Like Fred Chrisman, Harold Dahl seemed to have inexplicably vanished. But neither Harold nor Fred had vanished into thin air. When we return, we'll discover what happened when the FBI interrogated Harold and Fred and unpack some of the mysteries behind Maury Island. Now, back to the story. The UFO sightings at Mount Rainier and Maury Island in June 1947 kicked off the UFO phenomenon that took the United States by storm. But the investigation that Kenneth Arnold conducted left him with more questions than answers, starting with the mysterious disappearances of both Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman. As far as Kenneth Arnold knew, the two men up and vanished. Fred was on a plane to Alaska, and who knows where Harold had gone. The house he showed Arnold was deserted, and the phone operators had no record of H.A. Dahl. The last time Arnold ever saw Fred Chrisman was on August 2nd, 1947, at the Tacoma docks. And the last time Arnold saw Harold was the following morning at the diner. But unbeknownst to Arnold, both men were still in the Tacoma area. Their specific whereabouts are something of a mystery, but an August 19, 1947 FBI report sheds some light on what happened in the days following Arnold's departure. On August 5th, Fred walked into the Tacoma FBI office and asked if the Seattle FBI were investigating the Kelso B-25 crash. When told that they were not, Fred started rambling about sending rock fragments to Chicago to be analyzed. He claimed the results proved that they were from a flying disc. You have to wonder how a lab would know what material a flying saucer is made of if flying saucers hadn't been seen in the U.S. before Mount Rainier and Maury Island. The rambling diatribe clearly caught the interest of the FBI whether it was because they actually believed what Fred was trying to sell or because they thought he might be hiding something from them, possibly involving the Soviets. Regardless of the reasoning, the FBI report says agents picked up Fred and Harold for interrogation on August 7th. The two men sat in a cold, dimly lit room and faced an onslaught of questions about the saucers. At first, both Harold and Fred changed their stories. They denied their earlier claims that the slag fragments they found were extraterrestrial, or that they had any association with UFOs at all. The FBI agents weren't convinced. They watched as both men shifted nervously in their chairs, unable to make eye contact, and dripping sweat like leaky faucets. It took just a little bit of pressure for Harold and Fred to cave. And once they did, 
it was as if a dam had broken. Harold and Fred confessed that at the beginning of June 1947, they found some strange alien-looking rocks on Maury Island. It was Fred's idea to write to science fiction magazine editor Raymond Palmer and tell him of their discovery. They revealed that Palmer responded to them and asked if the strange rock formations belonged to a flying disc. Harold told Palmer he thought they may be and that some of the rocks had fallen onto his boat. However, Harold also told the FBI that he couldn't exactly remember what he had said to Palmer in their letters and that the whole thing was nothing more than a joke, a way to try to add value to a story they were trying to sell. So why Raymond Palmer? Why would the magazine editor be so interested in these wild claims? And why bring in Kenneth Arnold? When Raymond Palmer took over the editing duties of Amazing Stories in 1938, he wanted to improve the periodical's image. While popular, it wasn't very well respected. He wanted to bring in fresh, talented writers. One of the first stories he published came from a young writer named Isaac Asimov. While Asimov is better remembered today, it was actually the work of another of Palmer's authors that sent shockwaves through the science fiction community. Beginning in 1943, Palmer began publishing the work of Richard Sharp Shaver. What made his stories so fascinating was Shaver's claim that they were all true. Known as the Shaver Mystery, these stories talked of a secret race of beings known as the Darrows and an underground civilization that had been around for thousands of years. Shaver wrote that he had personally been in contact with the Darrows and learned the unbelievable truth about their history on Earth. Palmer struck gold with the Shaver Mystery series. The stories were a massive hit and magazine sales skyrocketed. One of its most avid readers was none other than Fred Chrisman of Tacoma, Washington. Fred loved to read and was a particularly huge fan of amazing stories. He also wrote science fiction stories of his own and sent a few of them to Palmer months before the Maury Island incident. Inspired by Shaver, Fred claimed his narratives were all true. In one of his stories, Fred claims that he and a friend engaged in a battle against a group of Darrows in a cave near Burma. He and his partner used machine guns while the Darrows shot at them with ray guns. Fred's Maury Island story takes the same approach as the Burma story. In fact, after telling the FBI that Maury Island was a hoax, Fred later recanted and went back to telling everyone what he and Harold had seen was true. In the years to come, Fred claimed that he still had the photographs Harold had taken. He continued the claim when he spoke at the Northwest UFO Space Convention in 1967. However, no one except Harold and Fred has ever seen these alleged photographs. But a piece of evidence that has left many wondering about the incident is the slag, mainly because there are conflicting reports as to what it actually was. Was it just smelting material like Major Sanders suggested? Most signs point to yes. Not long after Arnold left Tacoma, the Tacoma Times printed an article that described chemistry professor Robert Spranger performing experiments on lava rock found in a gravel pit on Maury Island. 
These specific pieces fit the descriptions of the fragments that Paul Lance had reported on a few days earlier in his article that spooked Arnold and Smith. According to Dr. Spranger, the fragments came from the Ruston Copper Smelter, which was located a few miles from Maury Island. It is widely known at the time that residents of Maury Island would purchase slag from the smelter to build retaining walls for houses or use it for wall lining in ships. It's been speculated that the fragments Harold found in the water had fallen off boats as they were being transported from Ruston to Maury Island. Much like timber logs that had fallen off the barges, Harold was salvaging. But Arnold never fully believed this explanation. In his memoir, Arnold includes an analysis report of two pieces of slag. One piece was from Ray Palmer, who claimed to have received it from Harold and Fred. The other piece came from the Tacoma Smelting Company, the place where Major Sander took Arnold and Smith on August 3rd. The report showed that Major Sanders' slag was, in fact, just typical slag from steel production. However, Harold and Fred's slag showed high traces of calcium and titanium. As Arnold's memoir points out, titanium at that time was widely used in constructing missiles and spacecraft, and calcium is used as a radiation deterrent. Could this be a piece of material from some otherworldly aircraft? Or was it material used to construct state-of-the-art guided missiles? But even if Fred and Harold's fragments are slightly different from the slag, there is one detail that challenges their claims. No one else has ever discovered the 20 tons of slag that supposedly fell into the water. No other witness has stepped forward to corroborate the two men's claims. 72 years after the incident, debates about the slag continue amongst ufologists, as do debates about some of the other strange elements of the Maury Island case, like the informant and the man in black. The informant feeding Ted Morello and Paul Lance information has never been discovered. However, given the accuracy of the events they described in the hotel room and the complete inaccuracy of the other predictions, it is easy to assume that it was either Harold or Fred calling the two reporters. None of the informant's predictions came true. Smith was never called to Wright-Patterson base for interrogation on August 5th, and no evidence of sabotage in the other airplane crashes was discovered. There was also no proof that the B-25 bomber carrying Brown and Davidson was shot down by a 20-millimeter cannon. According to the Air Force mission report, the cause of the crash was a sudden fire in the left engine. The wing ultimately broke off, causing the plane to nosedive and crash. And as to the identity of the man in black, the person who threatened Harold if he continued to talk about Maury Island, that continues to remain its own mystery. One theory claims that what Harold actually saw on Maury Island on June 21st was the illegal dump of radiation waste. The man in black who came to see Harold was really a government official warning Harold to keep his mouth shut about it. But there doesn't seem to be any factual basis for this claim. Despite the obvious signs that Maury Island was a hoax, the accuracy of Kenneth Arnold's Mount Rainier sighting is still something that is up for debate. Arnold never admitted that he was playing a hoax like Harold and Fred. 
In fact, to the day he died on January 16, 1984, the 68-year-old Arnold contended that what he saw was real. Arnold's sightings kicked off a national obsession with UFOs that would be solidified less than two weeks later when Mac Brazel found strange debris near Roswell, New Mexico. Throughout the rest of the summer, hundreds of people claimed to have seen flying saucers, many of which fit Arnold's saucer description. This ultimately led to an official government investigation dubbed Project Sign. Project Sign evolved into Project Grudge, which in turn became the now famous Project Blue Book. While the government found that Arnold was a credible witness, Ultimately, their conclusion was that what Arnold saw in the skies over Mount Rainier was nothing more than a mirage. One of the earliest UFO debunkers, Harvard astronomer Donald Menzel, mentions Arnold's sighting in his essay, The Truth About Flying Saucers, published in the June 1952 edition of Look Magazine. Menzel believes that Arnold simply saw snow blowing off the sides of Mount Rainier at a turbulent speed. While there is definitely some merit to this explanation, it insinuates that Arnold, an aviator, wouldn't be able to tell the difference between an aircraft-like metal object and snow. Menzel took an academic approach, but other debunkers have erred more on the creative side. One theory is that Arnold misidentified meteors, and another more ridiculous theory says that Arnold saw a chain of pelicans. While we believe that Arnold may have seen something strange in the skies over Mount Rainier, there just isn't enough proof to confirm that it was something extraterrestrial. And because Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman admitted to the FBI that their sighting was a hoax, we're giving the Maury Island and Mount Rainier incidents a combined score of four on the believability scale. 20 years after Maury Island, Fred Chrisman would find himself involved in another major scandal, the Kennedy assassination conspiracy. Early in the investigation, it was alleged that he was one of the three tramps photographed outside the book depository after the assassination. However, that was quickly debunked. But later, it was alleged that he was a CIA agent connected to three other suspects in the conspiracy. Clay Shaw, Thomas Beckham, and David Ferry. He testified for the grand jury in the Clay Shaw trial in October 1968, though his testimony had no real impact on the investigation. Fred's habit of finding himself in the middle of conspiracy theories and his proven desire to sell science fiction stories make it hard to buy a word that he says. But though Fred and Harold are unreliable witnesses, it's hard to deny that they and Arnold were major influences on the paranormal in the 20th century. In science fiction, the flying saucer has dominated our image of alien transportation for close to 80 years. Kenneth Arnold and Harold Dahl's descriptions became the standard for what we think of when someone says the word UFO. And in the decades since Mount Rainier and Maury Island, more and more people have claimed to have seen UFOs of some sort. As recently as June 2019, the U.S. Senate received classified material about Navy pilots seeing unidentified flying objects. Perhaps new information will come out and substantiate what Kenneth Arnold saw all those years ago. 
Regardless, we'll keep our eyes to the heavens and on the lookout for the original flying saucer. Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. For more information on the Maury Island incident and Mount Rainier, amongst many sources, we found the Maury Island UFO incident, the story behind the Air Force's first military plane crash by Charlotte Lefebvre and Philip Lipson, extremely helpful in our research. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial, as well as podcasts, other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Extraterrestrial is written by Joe Guerra and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. <laughs>